Hey, 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 ladies, gents, and gender-fluid friends. It's time again for Healthcare is Hilarious. Yes, it's me, Casey Quinlan, mighty Casey on the interwebs, with another snark-filled hot take on healthcare. Let's make fun of the ridiculous, give credit to the awesome, making time always to make you laugh and think at the same time. This week, you'll hear from John Wilbanks, Chief Commons Officer at Sage Bionetworks. Whoa. Yeah, that's most definitely a nerdimus maximus title, but John does very cool stuff around making data more accessible and usable by the research community, and he's down with the idea of data as an economic resource for not just the big money players, but also the humans who create that data. As his LinkedIn tagline says, I like making it easy to share things. We talked about digital democracy, why the medical industrial complex is so freaking late to the digital data party when it comes to making data available beyond its own castle walls, social media's data thievery problem, and my most favorite hot topic, hashtag FYPM data, the old fuck you pay me for my data thing. Here's our conversation. Explain what a chief commons officer might do. So my, my original job was to figure out how to give stuff away legally and ethically. And that has led to thinking a lot about all the different ways we bring data into platforms, use it inside platforms and move it off of platforms to users and thinking about all the systems, tools and processes that we use to do that, which we loosely call government. Yeah, governance is a term that I find is useful when you're talking to people who have a certain amount of understanding um, of the, you know, the topic at hand. Mm -hmm. Uh, But even using that word or even the word commons, uh, when you're just talking to an average human, some guy, you know, or gal, you know, some person out there, uh, that they'll be like, I don't understand. And you can see their eyes glaze over. Yeah, this is like at a cocktail party, I would say I like to help people share their data in ways that make research go faster, but are also ethical. Ah, yes. And that's the important part. Okay, now we'll dive in. Uh, It's been an interesting few last few years in the data world in that Chinese curse sense, may you live in interesting times. For the concept of digitally driven democracy, I mean, just look at what happened in uh, the um, the Arab Spring, which was supposed to deliver all sorts of awesome, ended up, whoops, no, I don't think that's where we ended up. Right. But you know, what's your take on how um, a citizen-focused fo- data commons approach might help fix this mess we find ourselves in? The reason I like the commons is that it, it addresses some of the reasons I think why digital democracy has failed the last 10 years or so, which is digital democracy, including a lot of the open source parts of it, are based on individual action, right? So if I have an individual right to my photographs, then it doesn't matter if I give them to Instagram because that was my choice. And, you know, it's led to this sort of distaste for doing things as groups that I think has has made it pretty easy to atomize and fracture us, right? And that's what algorithms are best at, is they slice and dice us into smaller and smaller groups. But we don't know how, we don't know what those groups are, right? And the thing I like about the commons, and, and I, this is, you know, Eleanor Ostrom is you know, the famous economist, or like she actually wasn't an economist, but she won the Nobel Prize for economics for studying the way that communities, diverse communities, managed resources in ways that weren't predicted either by the market or by the government. And so the reason I try to keep that word around me is that I think it, it, it remembers that we have some collective 
common responsibilities to manage things as groups for group benefit. Okay, well, you know, and then there's, you know, the old tragedy of the commons, which I'm probably going to link to in the show notes, along with other stuff. I just, you know, took, took a note. Because, you know, I mean, as, as much as, as it seems like a great idea to share your, uh, your grazing, your sheep grazing ground with all of the rest of the folks in your village, that turns into the same kind of mess that we're seeing in a lot of areas on social media right now. So, ah, moving on. <laughs> well, but that's an interesting point, right? Because the, there's the tragedy of the social commons, which I think is what has happened to discourse, right? But when you look at the actual tragedy of the commons article and you go read it, right? So it's about a rivalrous resource, land, where like I can use it or you can use it, but we can't both use it forever without me taking something away from you. Data is different. Right? We can both use it without hurting the other one, right? or one of us can keep it secret and hurt the other one with it, but it's my use doesn't affect your use, so it's a different thing. The other is an Ostrom. Part of what won her the Nobel Prize is that she studied the conditions under which the tragedy happens in the laboratory, and it turns out that tragedies of the commons are most likely to happen replicably when people can't talk to each other and they're anonymous to each other. Because when they can talk to each other and they know who each other are, they can negotiate and form communities. Yeah, so that's where the, you know, the, um, the troll farms, I won't use any specific geographic identification, <laughs> but the troll farms, that's where they create all of the, all of the problems. We'll just use that word. Yeah, because you can't trust that someone is who they say they are, and that creates some of the conditions that lead to that tragedy. Yeah, and I mean, that's why, I mean, you know, full disclosure, I'm an old person, but that's one of the many, you know, reasons that I live so much out loud as I do, because it's like, hey, it's hard to miss me. I mean, it's really hard to miss the tattoo that I have on my chest and various other things. And it's like, I'll own anything I said. I'll put my name on it. I am not anonymous at all. But I do have friends in the patient community who are anonymous for very valid reasons. Right. But um, but who also end up getting called out in the same way there was, a, you know, there have been a couple of interesting uh, sort of arguments, to put it politely, that I've witnessed on Twitter that have, um, uh, you know, had people who were anonymous for valid reasons get called out as being some kind of a, a liar or, right. you know, you know, some kind of, you know, you're not who you say you are because of that um, need for anonymity because of right. their personal circumstances. Well, and that, that gets that like, it's really hard to reuse these platforms, right? That are designed for advertising facilitation, right? Hijacking these platforms to do patient work is hard, right? Because in an ideal world, you'd create multiple tiers of space, right? Because it doesn't really matter that I know that you're Casey and you know that I'm John. What matters is that you know that I'm a consistent person right? So a pseudonym ought to be fine, right? But we don't have these sorts of safe spaces. You know, I mean, this is something Andrea Downing has shown on Facebook, right? Like patient communities on Facebook, even if they're private groups, aren't safe spaces, right? And so there's, there's this conflict between the systems that we've got, which really accelerate tragedies of commonses, right? In lots of ways, right? You know, because Facebook is the rancher that's eating up all of the grass for all of their sheep, right? <laughs> yeah. Right? And I say this, my wife used to work there, right? Like, you know, it's like, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm not unconflicted here, but they're, they're the rancher. And so how do you live inside a world where you can't really opt out of their platforms meaningfully 
and that's where all of your community is. It's a, those are non-trivial questions. Yeah, and I, you know, have um, you know, I have a presence on Facebook. I have multiple presences on Facebook. They're all me, and they're all traceable to me. And then I also run uh, Facebook pages for clients. So I get the issue, and um, you know, I have long said since before the internet was even a thing that anything anybody ever put in writing, uh, and that includes certainly digitally, if you put it in writing, you need to be willing to see it on the front page above the fold of, you know, the New York Times, Washington, pick one, you know, London, you know, pick a, pick a paper, a big one. And if you're not willing to, uh, you know, have that happen, don't say it near an open mic, don't put it in writing. Don't say it near a camera. But now, I mean, you know, basically it's hard to know if there's a camera or a microphone near you. Right. Um, well, I'm I mean, a little savvier. Than... Remember the well? Did you use the well? Oh, the yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. The I mean, well was great, right? You own your own words. Was 1980. I've been around a while. The digital mm -hmm. newsroom was totally a thing. Throughout right. But, but, but the, this concept that you own your own words, right? Like, but that's, but it's funny because that's a, that's a community that had a context and had norms. And one of the things that sort of internet everywhere, to your point of cameras and, and microphones everywhere, is that it makes it really easy for the norms of one community, a communication formed inside the norms of one community, to traverse to another one, and the context collapses along the way. And everybody gets really mad when everyone was acting inside the norms of their community at all times, but they didn't realize that their communities had been merged by a platform. Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of someone who has also done comedy and comedy writing, it's like it, the context is key. Context is key. But that also, you know, one of my like personal branding taglines is consistency is the mother of the message. In other words, if you are consistent and you are authentically you, then yeah, you could get in trouble every once in a while, but you will usually be able to if not completely explain away any misunderstanding, at least provide the context that will keep people from defenestrating you in public. You know? Well, and you can leverage a certain amount of trust that comes from that consistency, right? You know, that, um, like, and these are the things that have become kind of fluid in the information age. And, and, you know, we're like these apes running around, you know, we're apes with smartphones, guns, and money, right? And, it used to be Grow magnets with smartphones. Right. I mean, and, and, you know, these little, you know, it's, you know, it's a complicated moment. And, and, and I think is we want there to be answers. And I think all we've got right now are questions. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the internet or, you know, like social, social networking online, digital networking, um, you know, connect the world. Okay. We all know who we're talking about there. Um, but that was supposedly aimed at getting people a little bit more towards system two, you know, doing the longer think, the slower think, sharing information, sharing ideas, coming up with new approaches. But we've, you know, we've been reduced via this, you know, was supposed to connect everybody. We're all stuck on system one all the time, screaming infidel and heretic <laughs> at each other. And it's like, you know, we, we haven't, it's like we're back in, we're the peasants in, in uh, you know, Monty Putt-Putt and the Holy Grail down you know, like in the mud, you know, bashing each other, but, uh, but speaking really good English as we do it. You know, it's like, I'm not, I'm not sure we've, we've advanced humanity here, but well, we're trying. Like, sometimes I think Twitter is just like speaker's corner in London, right? Where you just see, anyone can go stand on a soapbox and just yell, right? And 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, having experienced that as a, as a young teenager when we lived in London, I thought that it was fascinating, but I also was really amazed that those guys, and they were all guys, really, that those guys did not beat out of them more often. But, you know, there was this polite, you know, sort of people standing around listening to these people basically rant, standing on, literally, in some cases, soapboxes. So, you know, it was, that was fascinating. Right. Well, you know, I mean, to shift this a little, you know, toward healthcare um, a bit, uh, and you know, thinking in terms of like we've talked now about digital citizenry and how everyone is so bloody connected, twenty four seven, three sixty five, for good or ill. What is your impression of why it's taken healthcare and medical science and research networks? Um, why it's taking them so long and why they seem so incapable of participating in the same fast um, information world that the rest of us are in right now? It's a good question. I mean, I don't have the answer. I have theories, um, right? I mean, the, the, the sort of the cliche answer is regulation, right? right? And I think regulation is a part of the answer, right? Which, you know, regulation makes it much harder to have your thing be move fast and break things because you get fined and or go to jail when you break things, right? And so I think that's, that's a real part of it. And I think that has both protected the system from innovation, but it's also protected the system from catastrophic, horrible things, right? Um, I mean, you look at the, the, the role that social media clearly plays in um, some of the genocides around the world, right? It's, it's not just the Arab Spring, it's the bad side. Um, but it, it's, it's, I, I think that's the first part of the story is that the regulations are old. And I think the second part of the story is that the regulations have been captured by electronic health records vendors. You know, my old boss on Capitol Hill, long after I stopped working there, Pete Stark, had a piece of legislation 10, 10 or so years ago they would have created a federal open source EHR system that anybody could have bought into at the cost of production, right? It would have been pretty significantly disruptive because you would have had the system that small providers could buy into uh, that would have essentially sort of grown and grown and grown. And that got diverted into what became the giant EHR giveaway, you know, a couple of years later, right? And, and what that did was just transfer tons of money to EHR vendors and put no pressure on them to act like, public-facing companies, right? So I think that's the second part, sort of the role of regulatory capture and the EHR vendors having zero interest in being part of any, any system other than a profit system. Yeah, so there's, um, I mean, there is no commons in that zone, at no, least. not, not really, not meaningfully. It's, it's, and there's all these pieces that are sort of, you know, it's, it's like, it's, it's like it, in order to take down the building, instead of just like blowing up the building, right? Right? We're having to sort of systematically weaken pieces of supports of the building and wait for it to collapse on its own, right? And that's sort of what meaningful use, and that's sort of what FIRE and SMART are doing. That's sort of what the ONC mandates for interoperability. All those things are eating away at the foundations, and eventually the building's going to collapse, and they're going to be like, where's the commons? And that's sort of like, well, first we have to clear away all the rubble, and then we have to plant, and then maybe there'll be a wetland, right, you know? So it's, I, but so that, those are sort of the business and government parts, but I mean, then there's the, solar, the whole, like, people are complicated. Biologic, biology is complicated. We walk around in a complicated world and make choices that are hard to capture and track. And so 
Ah, but is that really true? Um, because, yeah, I mean, yes, it's hard to capture and track inside an EHR mm-hmm. because, you know, I mean, but as we're wandering around waving our smartphones in the air, um, because that's what everybody's doing all day, every day. I don't know if you saw the New York Times piece um, mm-hmm. that, you know, that one with, you know, it's like your, your smartphone knows where you were last night and it's not keeping it quiet. Right. And, um, and then the, 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 sort of the pushback from industry, and I mean, it could be any one of a number of industries, but everything from the smartphone people to the ones who buy the data, that is like, well, but it's anonymized. Well, I'm sorry. If you have followed me from my house to the doctors, you know, in my house to the, like, you know, and, and I keep coming back to that house, you know who that is. That's Absolutely. me. I'm the only person who lives in here. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, so it's it's like we're supposed to be expected to give up privacy and to give up this, this, what has turned into the gold of the digital economy, which is our data, in exchange for, oh, I don't know, better ads for a bunch of crap we don't need. Um, or maybe it's that's stuff right. we do need or we do want. So that ad might have been useful. But man, that's an awful lot of commercial messaging um, just aimed at my head. It's exhausting. Well- not to mention it can be repurposed for surveillance state immediately, right? I mean, but this oh, gets at the hard part, which is that that data is really useful for advertising and surveillance and like arresting people and, you know, curtailing speech. And I think it's actually really useful for social determinants of health, right? Like knowing how often somebody goes to McDonald's by their, the time their phone spins in the drive through right? I pay cash at McDonald's because I still like it, even though I know I'm not supposed to, right? And I pay cash for it, but my phone knows I'm cheating, right? Yeah, your phone knows you're there. Right, but because normally, like, you know, pay cash for your Doritos is one of the lessons of the New York Times article, in my opinion. True. <laughs> but, but like, take something, like trying to use the phone to do phenotype for health, right? So we did this, you know, Parkinson study. It was the first big one we did with Apple and the research kit framework. It's hard for us to figure if your gait is different because your illness is worse or better that day than because it's icy or you're wearing clown shoes, right? So there's this uncanny valley, right? And so I'm going to be bad and make an analogy from pornography here, right? That's cool. Which is that there's this concept in animation and pornography animation of the uncanny valley, right? Which is robots and animated people and robots look human and pleasant until they approach a certain accuracy. And we respond well to them emotionally, right? Or in porn context, right? For whatever one interprets what respond well means in that sense. But as they approach some limit to each person, we begin to respond very negatively to them, right? Because it's close enough to trigger us to recognize all of the things that are wrong. Right. And then you can't, you have to get out of that valley. And so like CGI for movies has sort of gotten through that. Right, like now a CGI person, human, looks human enough that we can more or less tolerate it, right? It may be the same thing with sensing, which is that the more data you get, the more variables you have to confront, which is why sort of studies are so airtight and bounded, is that it lets you reduce the variables and the complexity and figure out if a thing affects another thing. Whereas you're like, right. you know, we just don't know why John's data changed that day. But I think that's where it goes, right? And that's really interesting because that happens completely outside the regulatory capture problem, the regulation space, 
and the vendors who have done the capture. But it puts you into this other space where the big platform phone vendors and media vendors and, you know, they have their own form of capture already. And they, you know, so it's sort of like, do you want to jump from the frying pan to the fire or from the fire to the frying pan? Yeah, and, the, you know, people are not generally asked in any meaningful way that leads to actually informed consent. You know, we're down to that no one reads the terms of service thing. I mean, Jesus, it's a six-point type. It's not a mobile phone. It's like, come on, I just want to get the app. And, you know, I want to do the thing that I was going to do. And so, you know, they skate past all of the informed consent about what's happening with right. the, you know, the personal stuff, you know, and personal devices, being online, pick one. And then on the industry side, and, you know, there's the healthcare industry, which is heavily regulated. And then there is the communications industry, which is also to a, you know, decent degree, noticeable degree, regulated in one way or another. But it is kind of like a wild west out there right now with the digital side of the house, particularly platforms like Facebook and, you know, large internet companies like Google. And, oh, yes, just fang, I'm looking at you. And everybody knows where we are and what we're doing 24 7, 365. And by everybody, I mean these big players who are using the data that we generate, um, consciously or not, to do things for us or right. to us. Often it feels like to us. And meanwhile, there's this ginormous trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars going all over everywhere over our heads. Um, but meanwhile, um, income inequality, there's just a whole bunch of, of factors economically here where the, the average citizen is getting kind of, you know, stuck with the bill for a lot of stuff. Meanwhile, a whole bunch of people are making money off me. And I'm like, wait a minute. So that's where my, you know, sort of hashtag FYPM data thing comes from, which is fuck you, pay me for my data. Boy, I've become boring on this topic. Um, I did a whole thread yesterday in response to something Lisa Simpson from Academy Health put up. And, and you know, I mean, I got a thank you from the guy who wrote the original piece. So maybe it was worth it. But, um, you know, thinking in terms of how there's an economic opportunity here, both um, individually and societally, um, that would require some thoughtfulness and economic planning on the part of big corporations, but that could deliver that sort of, I don't know, shiny, happy new world that the digital transformation and the internet was supposed to deliver. Yeah, I'm talking about universal basic income, but you know, I'm more about social enterprise, not socialism. So how about we turn each human into his or her own small company that's overseeing their little data empire. And maybe it's not, you know, like $10,000 a year, but it's a start. It's something. So I wandered all over the place there. What do you think? <laughs> I'm, I'm not, so I'm not opposed to a payment model for data. The thing that I worry about is that the actual value gets generated in the aggregate, right? By the aggregator, which is why when you look at people pushing property rights for your data, they're all for-profit companies. And almost sure. none of them have any lawyers or have a plan for how to create the property right in less than 10 years. Because you got to go to WIPO in Geneva. you got to go to the UN. It's a 20-year process. The Marrakesh Treaty for Blind Access to eBooks took 20 years. So, like, 
there's a reason why aggregators like this model, and it's the same reason Instagram likes copyrights. Yeah, you've got your copyright, but if you want to use Instagram, you've got to give them all the rights they need to do whatever they want, right? Yep. Property rights don't fix this. I think collective action fixes it, which is, you know, what I'd like to see are some open source platforms that patient advocacy groups and other communities can form their own aggregations on and make negotiations to get a piece of the real pie. Because what I'm afraid of is Google says your data is worth $80 a year to them. So they just pay you 80 bucks. And for $80, you gave away your digital self, right? And they're making billions off of it. And they say, well, we paid you, right? Yeah. What you really need to be able to do is to negotiate with them as a community that represents a threat, right? And in health, that works because you want to study communities, right? In order to get through the FDA, you've got to have a narrow community that you go after, whether that's a disease indication, a genetic indication. And so by saying, listen, we have leverage, we're not going to enroll in your studies, right? We're not going to participate. We're not going to do real world evidence for you. We're not going to do any of this stuff unless you cut a deal with us as a group. So my modification to your hashtag is to change the M to a U. You pay us. Okay. Right. And to agitate for these open source data platforms where you can form and pool your data in a format that is computationally attractive to a researcher and you can negotiate deals as a group because yeah. I think, you know, and this is, and then the other thing I think we need are, you know, a universal basic income, universal health care, right. And then criminal penalties for doing bad things with people's health data. Right, because that would what people, that would be lovely. Just that third one, I'd take. Yeah, because yeah. because I think what people want when they say they want control over their data or ownership over their data is they want a bundle of things, right? They want freedom from exploitation, right? They want to not get screwed by someone you know, arbitrarily on their insurance or their health care. Same thing with people that they know and that are related to them. You know, they want some sense of comfort that they are free of surveillance. They want some sense of power and agency. And so what we want is a simple answer to that. Well, if we give you a property right, that'll fix all that. And it doesn't, man. Like, as a photographer, my copyright doesn't give me power against Instagram. No. And if I have a property right on my data or even this collective right on data and I go to the ER and they make me sign a document that transfers everything to them in order for service, I have to sign it. And so yeah, I, I, we have yeah. to change the system. Not you can't, you can't get what you need unless you give ball. stuff away. Right. And, you know, it's like that, but this is how we do it. What? And, yeah. And so, that's where you could say, you know, this is why it's important that no one who gets, so, so let's say that, you know, I, I trade it to the ER or to the emergent or to the ambulance, right? Or to Uber because Uber sent me my ambulance, right? <laughs> but, but it's illegal for them to use that data in a way that hurts me it's illegal for them to sell that data, right? That achieves a lot of these goals in a way that doesn't require destroying the entire system we've got because like any approach that requires the destruction of the entire system we have to me is probably not going to happen in the next 10 years. And I'm worried about what happens in the next 10 years. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I worry about what's going to happen in the next 10 weeks sometimes, but exactly. um, yeah, so but 10 years, definitely. We're going to rip the whole thing down. I mean, if, if Bruce Sterling said this, right? If you want to be the Phoenix, you got to own the fire. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So, like, what are you going to do? What are we going to do now? Right. There's going to be a legislative opening next year, right? In a couple of weeks for legislation, at least in the house in the United States 
to do some of this. It won't pass the Senate. It won't get signed. But in 2021, the window may well be wide open to yeah. fix some of this stuff legislatively. At the same time, right, this is why I do what I do, is like we work on building one of these platforms. Right? We're a nonprofit, but we run cloud things that look like things that companies run, but we give them away for free. And if you really wanted to abuse Amazon through us, we would just pass through the Amazon, right? It's like a universal dial tone as opposed to a smartphone. Think about how different it was like, I'm in my mid forties, right? When I was a kid, everyone had a, you had a freaking phone. You had a right to a phone, right? It was a utility. Right. And so I think some of these technical things, like we need different players to pop up, take the responsibility to run utilities and serve those out to patient advocacy groups. So they don't have to use the big terrible platforms. And then we have a responsibility collectively to, you know, to be like the AIDS patients in the 80s with the FDA, but to do that with Congress and the FTC. Right. Silence equals death. I was there, Charlie, because I'm, you know, you said you were in your mid-40s. I'm in my later 60s. So, you know, it's like I, re I remember rotary phones. I remember rotary. The first phone I had as an adult was a rotary phone. That's how old I am. But, <laughs> but anyway, you know, it's like, it, so the commons piece, which we opened up with, um, you know, sort of feeds into what you were just talking about, you know, creating in, in, in that aggregate. In other words, one person working to sell their data is going to, you know, like 80 bucks from Google, and that's going to be about as much as they could maybe get because you don't have any kind of, you know, negotiating power when it's just, you know, just Joe or Jane Doe over here. And, but if you get, if you, if you band together in large groups, and then, um, you know, and create a commons for yourselves and then go out and negotiate who wants to access our commons. This is the licensing fee. Um, Something it, between a labor union and a credit union. Exactly. Exactly. Right? And this is where, you know, everyone, everyone wants these new solutions. The solutions are old and they're boring and they're hard because it requires dealing with and motivating and organizing people. Yeah. Yeah. And we've been atomized. Like all these systems have very successfully made us feel connected. But on a, and this is the thing, you know, when you look at it in research, right, where people are thinking, well, with these funds, we're going to have an N of we, right? And you see a lot of N of ones. And what the platforms create is an N of many ones where everyone's alone in their app, but the aggregator sees everything. Right. That's what we have to break. We have to find a way to actually form that N of we. Yeah, and that, you know, that leads perfectly into my last question that I have here is, you know, you know, what your sense is of the actual risks to people, you know, pa patients, people who identify as e-patients, and I don't mean electronic, it's, you know, enabled, equipped, empowered, engaged, etc. But the digital citizens who are patients and who have formed together into these patient groups, particularly on Facebook, um, what do you see as a real risk to them in, in that patient zone on um, the data hijacking that essentially went on unchecked and unfettered on uh, Facebook until they closed some of the gaps in their algorithm? I, I think the first risk is to insurance, right? The number one risk is to lose coverage, life insurance, disability coverage, right? Long-term care is almost ungettable now, but life and disability insurance, you can be discriminated against and those companies are buying information to make sure that their actuarial tables are better, right? And that information is gonna have you in it, right? 
it's going to catch you whether you use the platform or not. Um, and so I think that's the big one. And then there's this there's this sort of harder to quantify moral hazard and moral risk, which is you know, like say you have a miscarriage and you keep getting ads for baby stuff for months, and that's happened, right? There are beautiful books about this. And so there's this sort of that's harder to quantify, which is this just you know constantly being stalked by the wrong thing or punished for a thing that you didn't even know was something to be punished for. And those are the two things that keep me up at night. Before I wrap this app up, I got to tell you about the best thing on the internet this week in my zone, healthcare and comedy at least, Esther Chu, a brainiac MD who self-tags as inappropriate feminist, oh, she is so my tribe, and who is working on the daily toward gender equity in medicine, put up an hilarious piece on the BMJ Today, December 13th, 2018, for those of you playing along at home. The title, A Lexicon for Gender Bias in Academia and Medicine, which is a glossary of mansplaining. OMFG, I laughed, I cried, I'm dead. One highlight, and they're all highlights. He vu. When a white male leader is replaced by another white male leader, followed by another white male leader, and so on. <laughs> That's the show. I'll be back next week with more healthcare hilarity. And remember, America, it's a wonderful country. Just don't get sick. Healthcare is Hilarious is sponsored by Danny Van Leeuwen, also known as Health Hats. With his diverse and prolific health experience, Danny uses his multiple hats to empower people as they travel toward their best health. To join Danny on that best health journey, follow along in his blog and his fresh new podcast.